This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Parenting in a Modern World. In the first half, Laura Walker shares her address, Seize the Day, a Proactive Approach to Parenting Teens. Then in the second half, Quentin L. Cook speaks on A Banquet of Consequences, the Cumulative Result of All Choices. Teenagers. They've been called youth, minors, youngsters, troublemakers, punks, and juveniles. They're described as melodramatic, moody, uncommunicative, disorderly, and defiant. One news report even referred to today's adolescents as super predators. In Western culture, the teenage years are often looked forward to with great trepidation by parents. Even a simple search on Amazon.com brings up hundreds of books with titles like, Get Out of My Life, But First, Will You Drive Me? Seven Things Your Teenager Won't Tell You and How to Get It Out of Them Anyway. And yes, your teenager is crazy, loving your kid without losing your mind. This stereotype of teenage storm and stress dates back to the early 1900s when the term adolescence was first used by G. Stanley Hall and continued to dominate into the late 1950s when Anna Freud was quoted as saying, to be normal during the adolescent period is by itself abnormal. I actually remember my father repeating a very similar phrase to me when I was growing up, so apparently I contributed to this stereotype. Indeed, this view of adolescence is so strong that a few weeks ago, my seven-year-old daughter came up to me with tears and with impressive pre-adolescent melodrama cried, Mommy, I don't ever want to be a teenager because I don't ever want to stop loving you. However, despite historical and current public opinion, empirical research in the field of adolescence, which includes children ages 10 to 18, does not consider this time to be a universal period of storm and stress. Indeed, fully 80% of adolescents mention thinking highly of their parents, and 60% report wanting to be like their parents when they grow up. Adolescence is considered a period of transition for both parents and teens, But although there is realignment of the parent-child relationship that is often met with more than a few growing pains on both sides, most adolescents and their parents come through this time period relatively unscathed and continue to have meaningful relationships into adulthood. However, there are certainly exceptions to this rule, and how well adolescents navigate this period of development largely depends upon how their parents prepare for it and adapt to it. When I teach my class on adolescent development here at BYU, it often strikes me that I am talking to a population of students who do not yet have teenagers, so my words may not be applicable. However, in reality, this is the best audience to address because raising healthy teenagers requires a proactive approach, starting when children are young and building relationships of openness and communication over time. I certainly do not want to insinuate that it's too late to start being proactive once children reach adolescence, but prevention is always more effective than intervention. So those of you with young children, start taking notes. Today, I want to focus on what I call proactive parenting. However, 
A great deal of research on parenting focuses on reactive parenting, or parental discipline. Reactive parenting is defined as what parents do after a child has done something wrong or transgressed. Proactive parenting, on the other hand, is a parent's active attempt to socialize a child before misbehavior has occurred. I'm a big proponent of positive parenting, so it's important to note that both reactive and proactive parenting can also be applied to children's positive behavior. For example, reacting to a child's good behavior with praise or being proactive in promoting good behavior. That being said, for the sake of our discussion today, I will focus primarily on proactive parenting as it relates to the avoidance of misbehavior, although I will try to sneak in positive behavior as much as I can. Regardless of the nature of the adolescent's behavior, when comparing reactive and proactive parenting, it is suggested that proactive parenting is a more effective way to communicate parental messages than is reactive parenting, Because discipline situations are often accompanied by strong emotions on the part of both the parent and the child. And few of us internalize messages when we're being yelled at or scolded. All we know is that we don't like how we feel. So the message is sometimes lost in reactive parenting situations. That being said, parents often hope discipline will socialize parental values. And it certainly can when it is done effectively. But proactive parenting including such parental efforts as monitoring, teaching, and involvement, may help to decrease the need for extensive reactive parenting by anticipating the challenges the child might face and communicating values and parental expectations to the child before misbehavior occurs. In young children, this is a pretty straightforward process. For example, my day out shopping with my children goes wildly different when I am proactive and tell them ahead of time that today we will not be purchasing any toys or candy at the store. If I have a moment of delirium and somehow fail to give this important warning, the day usually ends in me dragging screaming children out of the store and leaving an abandoned shopping cart at the checkout counter while I desperately try not to yell at my children in public and display serious hypocrisy based on my many parenting lectures about patience and gentle instruction. (laughs) With adolescents, however, proactive parenting takes time, and starting sooner rather than later is always better. As children reach adolescence, they will increasingly be faced with values that may be contrary to those you hold as a family. In fact, I've been surprised as the mother of a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old that exposure to conflicting values starts much earlier than the adolescent years. Being proactive in the face of these ever-increasing conflicting messages of values whether they be from peers, teachers, or media, just to name a few, requires that parents clearly communicate their values to their children and, as necessary, provide them with tools to combat these potentially conflicting messages. At face value, this argument is intuitive. Why wait until your child is sexually active or involved in drugs to talk to them about these behaviors? Despite the intuitive nature of this argument, far more than I would like, I find my students professing to me that the first time their parents talked to them about sexuality was on their wedding day. This is consistent with research suggesting that many parents wait until their children are sexually active before talking to them about sexuality. Thankfully, most teens come through relatively unscathed, but for some, this is simply too late and can occasionally have serious consequences. 
Indeed, teens note that when they have questions about topics such as sexuality, the most common sources they turn to in an attempt to learn more are friends and the media. As a parent, I know that is not where I want my children to learn about issues which I feel so strongly about. Thus, it is important that we talk to our children early and frequently so we don't miss the boat, if you will, on teaching our children what is important to us and what we hope will also be important to them. Now that I have hopefully convinced you that proactive parenting is important, I would like to discuss three common proactive parenting practices I have identified in my research. The first is called cocooning. This is the most restrictive form of proactive parenting and is typified by parents who try to protect or shelter their children from any source outside the family that poses a potential threat. Examples of cocooning include forbidding certain television shows or not allowing children to hang out with particular friends. In one study I conducted, I asked mothers how they would respond if their child had a friend who behaved in a way that was not consistent with family values. One cocooning parent said, I would probably separate them and say, no more hanging out with that person. It wouldn't be gradual, working to pull them away. It would be point blank. You aren't hanging out with that person anymore. A second approach to proactive parenting is called pre-arming and involves a parent's active attempts to socialize values by providing some strategy or advanced arming with which to combat conflicting messages. This strategy is common among minority parents who know their children will be faced with discrimination, or by parents who feel their values are threatened by society and may include talking and discussion about specific situations adolescents might encounter. However, pre-arming is varied and can also be characterized by seemingly benign, value-laden comments we make as parents. For example, the other day my daughter saw a picture of one of her favorite cartoon characters who happened to be very skinny and a bit immodestly dressed. And she commented, Wow, Mom, that girl needs some clothes and a sandwich. (laughs) In addition... A few weeks ago, when my family was visiting Las Vegas, as we left, my son was saying goodbye to all the sights of Vegas as we passed them. He said, goodbye, M&M World, goodbye, Bellagio Buffet, and as we drove by a billboard, he ended with, goodbye, inappropriately dressed ladies. (laughs) My children's comments sounded eerily familiar. Clearly, my husband and I have been using pre-arming to communicate values about modesty and body image without even knowing it. The final proactive strategy is called deference and is characterized by parents who actively do nothing. This may not seem proactive at first glance, but parents I have interviewed suggest that this approach is an active attempt to show trust in their child and avoid contention and is usually used when adolescents are older after many years of parents using strategies like pre-arming and cocooning. When I asked parents how they would respond if their child had a friend who was involved in drugs, one mother displaying deference said, I don't think I would react to it. I mean, I know he has friends who smoke and drink, but I trust that he won't do the same thing. As you might expect, parents use these three strategies to varying degrees as their children age and become more mature and responsible. Indeed, in a recent longitudinal study, we found that over a period of three years, from age 12 at time 1 to age 14 at time 3, parents' rates of pre-arming and cocooning, indicated by the orange and green lines, 
both decreased over time, and rates of deference, indicated by the yellow line, increased over time. You can see that pre-arming is the most commonly used proactive parenting strategy across all time points. But by age 14, deference is nearly as common as pre-arming. It is important to note that these strategies are also used during childhood and should change in frequency and content as children get older in an attempt to be developmentally appropriate. For example, if my 10-year-old son asks me where babies come from, I might have a desire to save myself the embarrassment by pawning it off on my husband or changing the subject. However, if I'm being proactive, avoidance is not a good tactic, and a discussion is important to open lines of communication and teach my child that he can come to me when he has a question, any question. However, being developmentally appropriate, I would likely cocoon him a bit from some of the more complicated details and save those for when he's a little bit older. But allowing the conversation to take place is key at any age. In addition to proactive parenting practices changing as children get older, parents also do not use only one proactive approach to parenting. Indeed, most parents combine several and are quite flexible in their use. My colleagues and I have found several patterns of proactive parenting, the most common of which include what we call reasoned deference and reasoned cocooning. Reason deference consists of parents who combine deference and pre-arming and allow their adolescents to make their own decisions but talk to them about those decisions. Reasoned cocooning, on your right, consists of parents who combine cocooning and pre-arming and shelter or protect their adolescents from outside influences but also talk with their children about these decisions. So taken together, research suggests there are three main approaches to proactive parenting in the face of conflicting values, including cocooning, pre-arming, and deference. And these are sometimes used alone, but oftentimes used in combination. The next logical question to pose, and perhaps the most important, is which of these strategies is most effective at promoting positive teen outcomes? My first answer as a developmentalist would be the very precise response of, It depends. It depends on many factors, but those I will discuss today include the source of the influence, for example, media versus peers, a host of characteristics of the child, such as temperament, gender, and age, and the type of outcomes studied. When considering the source of influence, research suggests that parents feel more threatened by the influence of the media on their children than they do by the influence of peers. Although there is a body of research focusing on proactive parenting in response to peers, today I will focus primarily on the influence of media. Research suggests that parents are more likely to cocoon their children from the influence of media than they are the influence of friends. Although some forms of media are not appropriate at any age, research suggests that strict cocooning of media is not very effective, especially as adolescents get older and can view media at a friend's house or on their portable media device. It seems to be more effective to use pre-arming, which is to talk to adolescents about media that they may encounter and offer them strategies with which to deal with potentially inappropriate types of media. In fact, I was talking to a fellow researcher who does a great deal of work on video game violence, and he said that his pre-arming has been so effective that his teenage daughter is highly critical, even toward the shows or video games he wants to participate in with her. This example highlights 
the strong influence that prearming can have on children, but also raises the issue of the potential benefit of parents engaging in media with their teens. My colleagues and I have recently conducted a series of studies suggesting that if parents use media with their children, for example, playing video games or watching movies with teens or even texting their teens, this can strengthen family ties. We have speculated that engaging in media as a family creates opportunities in which prearming can occur by providing a platform for parent-child conversation about media content. Indeed, I remember numerous conversations I had with my parents as a teenager that began as a result of something we watched together on television. Although watching inappropriate or violent media with teenagers can unintentionally act as an endorsement of negative behavior, watching television shows appropriate for teens or playing appropriate video games, rated T and below, have been shown to lead to greater levels of parent-child connection, which is key to opening channels of communication and allowing for discussion about important issues. So although parental cocooning of media during early childhood may be appropriate, reasoned cocooning or prearming seem to be more effective approaches to dealing with conflicting messages of values from media during the adolescent years. When considering the most effective proactive parenting strategy as a function of child characteristics, it is important to consider a number of factors, including temperament, gender, and age of the child. In regard to temperament, some children are temperamentally more susceptible to peer influences or to media influences such as aggression. So reasoned cocooning in childhood may be appropriate for this type of child, as any exposure might negatively influence behavior. In contrast, a child who is very good at regulating himself may not need as much cocooning, especially as he displays his ability to make good choices in regard to media and friends. When considering gender, we have found that proactive parenting as it relates to media in particular is differentially effective for boys and girls. For example, playing appropriate video games with girls seems to be an effective proactive strategy, likely for all the reasons previously mentioned. But co-playing has less impact on boys. In addition, texting and calling on cell phones is related to a host of negative outcomes for girls, but not so much so for boys. So parents may need to be especially proactive in regard to cell phone use with their daughters. The effectiveness of each strategy is also dependent upon the age of the child. Although I will be discussing age in numbers, it is worth mentioning that developmental age is probably more accurate for parents to use as a gauge than is chronological age, because each individual child, regardless of age, will develop on his or her own personal timetable. It is possible that the age ranges used in research do not apply to each practical situation, so please keep that in mind as we discuss age. One study I would like to highlight focused on early adolescence, around age 11. In this study, we found that the most common proactive parenting practices were prearming, reasoned deference, reasoned cocooning, and deference. We examined these four practices in relation to numerous adolescent outcomes. Our results suggested that any strategy that contained prearming seemed to be positively associated with healthy outcomes for early teens. For example, we found that mothers and fathers who used prearming, reasoned deference, or reasoned cocooning all had adolescent children with higher levels of empathy and self-regulation than did parents who used deference alone. 
As you can see from the bottom two rows of the table, we also found that mothers who used these three strategies had teens with lower levels of depression and delinquency than those who used deference alone. In other words, whether parents allowed their early teens more autonomy or whether they sheltered their children a bit more did not seem to matter as much as whether or not parents combined these strategies with discussion about potential influences. This is likely because as parents have open conversations with their teens about value-laden topics, parents are not only communicating values, but are also hopefully allowing their children to engage in dialogue that will impact both moral reasoning abilities and feelings of self-generation. Self-generation means that adolescents feel they are choosing their own values and behaviors. Despite the importance of autonomy in promoting adolescents' feelings of self-generation, it is clear from these findings that deference during early adolescence is not associated with positive outcomes. This may be because deference is developmentally inappropriate if used as the sole proactive approach before adolescence values are adequately internalized. Another study I would like to highlight focused on middle adolescence, about age 14, and examined different outcomes than the study just discussed. So while I will still be highlighting the role of adolescent age, contrasting these two studies also raises an important issue of differential effectiveness of proactive parenting as a function of the outcome measured. For example, compliance and independence are very different outcomes. If I'm interested in compliance from my child, I might use a very different approach than if I'm interested in fostering independence. One outcome that I believe is key to examine in relation to proactive parenting is the development of personal values or the internalization of values. If proactive parenting is an attempt to avoid misbehavior in the face of potentially conflicting values, then being proactive is one way that we as parents, leaders, or teachers attempt to promote family or societal values in our children. Examining the development of adolescent values is an important avenue of research because many of us believe that values are reflected in behaviors, and parents often go to great lengths to socialize positive values in their children. Values are defined as broad, stable goals or motivational constructs that communicate what is important to an individual. For example, one might value being kind and honest to those around them, which researchers term benevolent or prosocial values. Others might value achievement, defined as striving to excel in an area such as school or athletics. There are many different types of values, and not all of them are positive. For example, values of power or hedonism are usually fairly self-centered, and in isolation of other more positive values are not as frequently socialized by parents. So for the sake of our discussion today, I will focus on positive values. As I mentioned, it is often our perception that what one values will be reflected in one's behavior. For example, if an adolescent values benevolence, he should be more likely to volunteer and be kind to his neighbor. If another adolescent values academic achievement, she should be more likely to do well in school. If values are not reflected in their corresponding behaviors, then there is little benefit to our socializing values in our children. However, while this connection between values and behaviors is perhaps a logical assumption, it does not have much research support and is dependent upon how internalized adolescents' values are. Internalization of values is the process whereby children acknowledge values and integrate them into their identities. More specifically, if values are externally regulated 
or if we value something only in so much as we would get punished for not doing it, our values are less likely to be reflected in our behaviors. However, if our values are internally regulated, or if we value something because we enjoy it, or because it is part of who we are and how we define ourselves, then that value is much more likely to be reflected in our behavior. For example, my daughter's motivation for helping me may often be to get praise or to be recognized, which represents external regulation and would not be as strongly reflected in her helping behavior. However, a few weeks ago, when my daughter asked me if I was going to thank her for helping me, I said, did you help me just to get a thank you? To which she replied, no, I helped you because I love you. This notion of helping for the personal satisfaction it brings, or because it is part of who you are, represents a value that is internalized and should be more clearly reflected in behavior. Thus, the last study I would like to discuss with you today is one that my colleagues and I recently conducted examining proactive parenting as it relates to concordance between adolescents' internalization of values and corresponding behaviors. We call this value-congruent behavior, or behavior that is congruent with one's values. For this study, we focused on four general values that are salient during the teen years and their corresponding behaviors. We determined how internalized teens' values were by asking them a series of questions, getting at how deeply held or how internally regulated each of these values were. Then we asked them a series of questions regarding their frequency of the behaviors that corresponded with these values. First, we measured internalization of benevolent values, or values of kindness and honesty, and their correspondence with prosocial behavior, or the frequency of helping behavior. We expected that more internalized benevolent values would be associated with higher levels of prosocial behavior. Second, we measured internalization of achievement values, specifically academic achievement values, and their correspondence with school engagement, or how engaged or involved adolescents were in school. We expected that more internalized achievement values would be associated with higher levels of school engagement. Third, we measured internalization of values regarding the avoidance of drug use or adolescents' reasons for avoiding drugs and their correspondence with delinquent behavior, such as drinking and smoking. We expected that more internalized values of avoiding drug use would be associated with lower levels of delinquency. Fourth, we measured peer values, or values about choosing friends who displayed good behavior, and their correspondence with deviant peer association, or how many friends adolescents had who were involved in deviant behavior. We expected that more internalized values about choosing good peers would be associated with lower levels of deviant peer association. What we wanted to understand in this study was which approach to proactive parenting resulted in the highest level of value-congruent behavior across these four domains. Again, we were interested in the link between values and their corresponding behaviors, but hypothesized that the strength of the relation between values and behaviors might be dependent upon the proactive parenting strategy that was used. In this study, the most commonly used proactive parenting practices were deference, pre-arming, reasoned deference, and reasoned cocooning. Findings suggested that mothers who used deference and fathers who used reasoned deference were the only parents whose teens from ages 13 to 14 had value-congruent behavior in all four domains measured. In other words, parents who talked to their adolescents but also allowed autonomy in the face of potentially conflicting values in an attempt to show trust in their child 
had teens whose values were more strongly tied to their behaviors. Now, for many of us, this may be difficult to digest. Is doing nothing really the best way to help our teens make correct choices? Absolutely not. One of the reasons I share this study with you is because the findings highlight the importance of being proactive. Remember that parents who use deference before misbehavior has occurred have often spent years using cocooning and prearming to teach their children values and are now allowing those children the autonomy necessary to make their own decisions. If parents want to be capable of allowing the freedom that many adolescents and young adults desire, they are better served to begin the work of teaching values much earlier than adolescents, which will keep lines of communication open throughout the teenage years. Adolescence is a time of transition, as mentioned earlier, and most teens balk at the idea of being controlled or may even interpret well-meant parental suggestions as annoying lecturing that is infringing upon their ability to make their own decisions. If parents start early, with young children and early adolescents talking to them about values and behaviors, different situations they may be faced with and how to respond, It is likely that once teens hit mid-adolescence, about age 14 or 15, their values will be beginning to solidify and will be at least moderately reflected in their behaviors, allowing parents to stand back and increasingly defer to the child. Proactive parenting, especially pre-arming, during childhood and adolescence will also increase the chances that adolescents will come to parents when they are faced with conflicting values or situations that they are not sure how to deal with. Those parents who did not lay this foundation in childhood and early adolescence may find themselves struggling to help their teens who have been thrust into a world with numerous conflicting values from countless sources, having very little advanced armor with which to protect themselves, and who do not feel they can discuss difficult issues with their parents. If parents find themselves in this position, it is not too late to start opening lines of communication and increasing parent-child connection. Although long-standing patterns of communication and family interaction are difficult to change, acknowledgement of the need to change is an important first step. That being said, ideally we need to be diligent in talking to our children and opening lines of communication early, so that when teens hit mid-adolescence, we can allow them appropriate levels of autonomy and encourage them to use their agency to make good choices. Remember, deference was not a developmentally appropriate choice for early adolescents, but current research suggests that by mid-adolescence, increasingly allowing teens to make their own decisions and keeping lines of communication open results in the most consistent pattern of value-congruent behaviors. It's important to note, however, that when given autonomy, not all children will make good choices. Many of us are all too aware that despite our best efforts, our children continue to make poor choices. Even proactive parenting is not a fail-safe approach, and although I can share with you what research suggests is the most effective for teens on average, clearly there are individual situations that require special measures. Thus, taken together, we can conclude that the most effective approach to proactive parenting is a flexible approach that may change depending on the source of influence, on the individual child, and on the type of outcome being measured. Regardless of this complexity, I would also hope that parents who proactively lay the groundwork for open communication and continued strong relationships with their children will find themselves less frequently referring to their teens as uncommunicative, disorderly, and defiant, 
and will more frequently find themselves using adjectives such as cooperative, communicative, and trustworthy. As I wrap up for today, I would like to close by applying the principle of proactive parenting to our lives more generally. Regardless of what stage of life each of us is in, being proactive can benefit us in many ways. As I mentioned earlier, even those who do not yet have children benefit from knowing the importance of being proactive parents in the future. But individually and spiritually, being proactive is also essential to our successful progression. For example, if I know that I have a tendency to eat an entire plate of cookies in one sitting, it might be wise not to bake them in the first place or to proactively decide to give a portion of them away as a service to someone else and to myself. More seriously, many sinful patterns can be avoided by being proactive against the influences of the adversary. This may mean avoiding situations and individuals who you know will put you in harm's way, whether that be a friend, a roommate, particular types of people, or an empty room alone with your fiancé. Avoiding our own personal pitfalls requires that we are aware of them and willing to face them. Just as helping our children to avoid their pitfalls requires that we take the time to get to know our children and their vulnerabilities. Anticipating vulnerability and taking the necessary precautions before serious sin occurs is always easier than repenting afterward. Counsel to be prepared both temporally and spiritually is not something that we are unfamiliar with in the Church, and being self-reliant in these ways requires us to be proactive. I would consider that being proactive should be likened to putting on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand." Whether we apply this principle to ourselves or help to provide our children with these tools, this proactive approach helps us and our children to stand strong in both temporal and spiritual situations. We have been counseled to be in the world but not of the world. Quentin L. Cook said, We cannot avoid the world. A cloistered existence is not the answer. In a positive sense, our contribution to the world is part of our challenge and is essential if we are to develop our talents. He later mentioned that one way for us to do this is to be confident about and to live our beliefs. It is my prayer that we will seize the opportunity to be proactive today, in our own lives and in the lives of our children, and actively use the daily opportunities we have to strengthen ourselves, our families, and those around us, so we, along with our posterity, might have a more blessed tomorrow. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Parenting in a Modern World. We've just heard from Laura Walker. After the break, we'll return with Quentin L. Cook for A Banquet of Consequences, the Cumulative Result of All Choices. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Parenting in a Modern World. 
Next is Quentin L. Cook, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, titled A Banquet of Consequences, The Cumulative Result of All Choices. One of the most cunning aspects of the adversary's efforts to thwart our Father in Heaven's plan of happiness is his deceitful teaching that there is no evil influence or devil and his attempt to redefine evil as good and good as evil, darkness as light and light as darkness, bitter as sweet and sweet as bitter. This is sometimes called a paradigm shift or when the usual way of thinking about or doing something is replaced by a new or different way thus portraying things to be exactly the opposite of what they really are. C.S. Lewis, in his classic novel, The Screwtape Letters, writes from a senior devil's point of view. Lewis inverts traditional values using irony and satire to make evil appear good and good appear evil. In this vein, I had a provocative meeting with an internationally recognized advertising executive a few months ago. He is an unusually gifted and creative thinker. We were discussing the influence of evil and the consequences of bad choices. He envisioned an interesting hypothetical account of the adversary, Lucifer, meeting with an advertising agency. The adversary described his dilemma. He and his followers had rebelled and rejected the Father's plan and had come to understand they could not prevail against God. Lucifer understood that while the Father's plan was about joy and happiness, his own plan was resulting in grief and misery. The problem, Lucifer explained to the ad executive, was how to attract followers. After contemplating this problem, it was determined that Lucifer's only hope of success was to achieve a paradigm shift or values inversion. In other words, to characterize the Father's plan as resulting in grief and misery and Lucifer's plan as resulting in joy and happiness. While this contemplated meeting with the advertising agency is hypothetical, it serves a useful purpose. The truth is not only do the enemies of Father's plan attempt to undermine the doctrine and principles of the plan, but they also attempt to mischaracterize the blessings that flow from the plan. Their basic effort is to make that which is good, righteous, and joyful seem utterly miserable. I will discuss some of the adversary's efforts to mischaracterize and undermine the blessings of living according to the Father's plan. The distortion or paradigm shift that the adversary utilizes is clearly illustrated by his advocacy for tobacco and alcohol. Even the hypothetical advertising agency would have a hard time casting tobacco in a favorable light today. Smokers are more likely than non-smokers to develop heart disease, stroke, and lung cancer. It is estimated to increase the risk of lung cancer by 25 times. So what the adversary portrayed as fashionable, sophisticated, and fun has in fact resulted in misery and untimely death for millions of people. Alcohol is another example. Think again of the adversary's campaign and how BYU's honor code has been portrayed. We are all pleased that BYU consistently rates as the highest stone 
cold, sober school. The word stone as an adverb can mean entirely, utterly. Cold as an adverb can mean with utter finality, absolutely, completely. Sober is defined as alcoholic abstinence. Some other schools are identified as party schools, understood to mean alcohol parties. Party is defined as a gathering for social entertainment or the entertainment itself. Now, to the average young person, particularly those not of our faith, looking for higher education, stone, cold, sober might sound like misery, and party might sound like fun and being joyful. Over many years, I have followed a research project that commenced in the 1940s. Initially, there were 268 men who were attending Harvard University and were periodically studied over their entire lives. Later, others, including women, became part of the study. The goal of the original study was to find out about success and happiness. The study showed that college entrance scores and grade averages did not predict either success or happiness in later life. The study contains three significant insights for me. First, adult happiness had a high correlation with childhood family happiness, especially love and affection from their parents. Second is the importance of a healthy, stable marriage to a lifelong happiness. Third is the negative effects of alcohol on marital and lifetime success and happiness. Alcohol abuse touches one-third of families and is involved in one-fourth of hospital admissions. It plays a major role in death, bad health, and diminished accomplishment. In a recent front-page article in the Washington Post titled Wine, Woman, and Danger, Based on U.S. federal health data, it was reported that women in America are drinking far more and far more frequently than their mothers or grandmothers did, and alcohol consumption is killing them in record numbers. The article concludes, The current and emerging science does not support the purported benefits of moderate drinking, and the risk of death from cancer appears to go up with any level of alcohol consumption. In the last two or three years, many universities across the world have been trying to diminish alcohol use because of its connection to serious antisocial behavior, including sexual assault and serious health concerns, especially from binge drinking. The terrible impact of alcohol on many young brains is now medically established. In reciting primarily personal health issues, I have not attempted to categorize other serious alcohol impacts like accidents while driving under the influence, men trying to excuse physical and sexual assaults because of alcohol impairment, and the effects on fetal brains from alcohol use during pregnancy. As if cigarette smoking, alcohol abuse, and an opiate epidemic were not harmful enough to society, we now see the forces of evil pushing legalization of recreational marijuana. To come back to our advertising analogy, Stone cold sober is ultimately joy and happiness, and in many cases party, as in alcohol party, is ultimately grief and misery. Family choices follow a similar pattern. In the Father's plan, the role of families is clearly set forth in the family, a proclamation to the world. It reads, The family is ordained of God. Marriage between man and woman is essential to His eternal plan. 
Children are entitled to birth within the bonds of matrimony and to be reared by a father and a mother who honor marital vows. With complete fidelity, happiness in family life is most likely to be achieved when founded upon the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. It is fairly common in today's world, in another paradigm shift, to trumpet alternative choices in a positive way that are in direct conflict with this plan and are unfavorable to marriage and family. To mention a few, the choice for both women and men to put education and careers ahead of marriage and family, the choice to purposely have no or few children or to terminate pregnancy when inconvenient, the choice to engage in immoral conduct as a substitute for the sacred institution of marriage. The adversary has targeted women and painted motherhood as a dead-end road of drudgery. He has targeted men and painted fatherhood as unimportant and fidelity as old school. The alienation and objectification of pornography is an example of immoral conduct being substituted for the sacred institution of marriage. It underscores the horrific turning from truth and righteousness that the adversary seeks. Inappropriate alternative choices are painted as appropriate in helping to achieve the worldly goals of freedom and equality. As a result of such choices, the average number of children a woman will bear in her lifetime is declining dramatically. It is estimated that 46 percent of the world lives in countries where the fertility rate is below 2.1 children, the rate necessary for the population to remain stable. Most European and Asian countries are below this level. Italy and Japan are both at 1.3 births. Japan is expected to decrease in population from 120 million to about 100 million by the year 2050. This worldwide decline in population has been described by some as the demographic winter. Many countries are not having enough children to replace the generation that is dying. Let me share one other reality that is a great concern to me. I had a sobering experience in Jerusalem last October. We visited the Children's Memorial Museum, which is part of the World Holocaust Remembrance Center. Elder Holland and I, together with two Jewish American leaders, laid a remembrance wreath. As you move through the Children's Memorial, the first names of the children and their age at death are announced, one after another, with a background of music that portrays this terrible atrocity. It is believed that over one million Jewish children were killed during the Holocaust. As I experienced the museum, I was overcome with emotion and completely devastated. Standing outside to regain my composure, I reflected on the horror of the experience and suddenly realized that in the United States alone, there are as many abortions every two years as the number of Jewish children killed in the Holocaust during the Second World War. Now, as a lawyer, I am cognizant that motives and intent are entirely different. The Jewish children were killed because they were Jews, and there is no analog to this in all history. But the intensity of my feeling was about the loss of children. Bringing children into the world is a sacred part of our Father in Heaven's plan of happiness. We are so numbed and intimidated by the immensity of the practice of abortion 
that many of us have pushed it to the back of our minds and try to keep it out of our consciousness. Clearly, the adversary is attacking the value of children on many levels. Abortion needs to be approached very carefully. It is a problem that will probably not be solved by personal condemnation or judgmental accusations. Some have cautioned, do not judge a ship or men or women without understanding the length of the voyage and the storms they have encountered. I might add, many who engage in this deplorable conduct do not have a testimony of the Savior or knowledge of the Father's plan. However, for those who believe we are accountable to God, and even for many of those not of our faith who are secular but pride themselves on being on the so-called right side of history, this has become a tragedy of monumental proportions when you combine it with the demographic winner that we have just explored. It is a serious moral blot on our society. President Spencer W. Kimball taught, Supreme happiness in marriage is governed considerably by a primary factor, that of the bearing and rearing of children. The Church cannot approve nor condone measures which greatly limit the family. With respect to the number and spacing of children, the health of the mother must be considered and the decision should be made prayerfully by husbands and wives. Such decisions should never be judged by outsiders. Some faithful saints are not able to have children or have the opportunity to marry. They will receive every blessing at the ultimate banquet of consequences. Nevertheless, Lucifer has supported abortion and convinced many people in a horrific paradigm shift that children represent lost opportunity and misery instead of joy and happiness. As Latter-day Saints, we must be at the forefront of changing hearts and minds on the importance of children. The attacks on the family that I just described ultimately result in grief and misery. The Lord has declared that His work and His glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. The plan is established through families. Every family member is important, and their roles are beautiful, glorious, and fulfilling. The Family Proclamation could not be more clear about the consequences of choices inconsistent with the Father's plan. It unequivocally proclaims, We warn that the disintegration of the family will bring upon individuals, communities, and nations the calamities foretold by ancient and modern prophets." This clearly sets forth the ultimate banquet of consequences and the cumulative impact of choices not in accordance with the Father's plan of happiness. In all marriages and in raising children, there are challenges and sacrifices, but the rewards both in this life and in the eternities are breathtakingly beautiful. They emanate from a loving Father in heaven. Most of you are on the verge of that period of life where financial matters and the choices you make about them are exceedingly important. A familiar scripture found in Alma 3630 and many other places in the Book of Mormon has two parts. It reads, Inasmuch as ye will keep the commandments of God, ye shall prosper in the land. The second part reads, Inasmuch as ye will not keep the commandments of God, ye shall be cut off from His presence. It is clear that having the blessing of the Holy Spirit 
is a principal element of prospering in the land. Along with having the Spirit, sacred teachings of the Church establish having sufficient for our needs as the best measure of temporal prosperity. Lucifer's paradigm shift here is to elevate the seeking of great wealth and the acquisition of highly visible luxury products. Some seem absolutely driven to achieve the lifestyle of the rich and famous. Excess wealth is not promised to faithful members, nor does it usually bring happiness. As a people, the Latter-day Saints have indeed prospered. Some achieve wealth as the result of very worthwhile and appropriate pursuits and use that wealth to bless mankind and further the Lord's purposes. Wise financial principles include seeking the kingdom of God first, working, planning, and spending wisely, planning for the future, and using wealth to build up the kingdom of God. Many years ago, President N. Eldon Tanner gave a classic talk entitled Constancy Amid Change. The principles he taught are as applicable today as when he taught them. First, pay an honest tithing. Second, live on less than you earn. Third, learn to distinguish between needs and wants. And in doing so, remember that yesterday's luxuries have in some cases become today's necessities. Fourth, develop and live within a budget, but plan on the unexpected. And fifth, be honest in all your financial affairs. President Tanner's admonition to live on less than you earn is a fundamental principle. In its most simple form, this is the principle. If you earn $100 and you only spend $95, you will be happy. If you earn $100 and you spend $105, this could be a recipe for misery. In addition to portraying blessings as misery, Lucifer's objective is to undermine the Father's plan and destroy faith in Jesus Christ and His doctrine. The assault on the Bible and the divinity of Jesus Christ has never been more pronounced in my lifetime than it is today. As the scriptures predicted, Lucifer is using many devices to accomplish this objective. As Helaman taught, remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation, that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, yea, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe. Because of the rock upon which ye are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereon if men build, they cannot fall. It is one thing to be misled by the adversary. It is another to be one of his mercenaries. Elder Neil A. Maxwell, as usual, said it beautifully. How tragic it is that so many mortals are mercenaries for the adversary and are bought off at such low prices, a little status, a little money, a little praise, a little fleeting fame, and they are willing to do the bidding of him who can offer all sorts of transitory rewards but who has no celestial currency. End quote. This echoes the famous words of Alma, speaking of Korahor, who had spread the old militant atheist lies and then discovered the devil will not support his children at the last day. There is probably no better example of the impact of mercenaries than Lehi's vision of the Tree of Life in the great and spacious building in the Book of Mormon. 
It describes those who pointed fingers at those who had grasped the rod of iron and had even partaken of the fruit of the tree. It caused them to be ashamed because of those that were scoffing at them, and they fell away into forbidden paths and were lost. Thus, bad choices result in a banquet with bitter, rancid, nasty, and miserable results. Compare this to the glorious banquet of consequences that are promised to you who are faithful. You will be filled with the glory of the Lord, sanctified by the Spirit and the renewing of your body, and all that the Father hath will be given to you. Such a banquet of consequences is where the spiritual food we feast upon is delicious, savory, sweet, succulent, nourishing, and fulfilling, and will allow our hearts to rejoice. When we come unto the Holy One of Israel and feast upon that which perisheth not, neither can be corrupted, we can follow the narrow path and the straight course which will bring us to the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah has promised that at the final banquet of consequences, the Lord of the host will swallow up death, wipe away tears from all faces, and we will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. I leave my sure witness of the Father's glorious plan and of the Savior's love, atonement, resurrection, and divine guidance. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Parenting in a Modern World, with thoughts from Laura Walker and Quentin L. Cook. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.